in the spirit of reconciliation. Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Class actions is now a political issue because it's also mixed up with corporate Australia, that circular notion that who ends up paying? Welcome to On Just Terms. In this series, we look at the changing nature of corporate risk in Australia by speaking to the people at the front line of Australian litigation who will shape the future of the Australian legal risk landscape. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Michael Pelly, the legal affairs editor of the Australian Financial Review. Based in the Sydney newsroom, Michael's a former senior advisor to state and federal attorneys general and the author of many works, including The Smiler, a biography of former Chief Justice Murray Gleeson. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the reporting of legal affairs, trending reforms in class actions, and the issues most likely to grab future headlines in Australia. Michael, thank you so much for joining this episode of On Just Terms and being gracious with your time. Pleasure, Jason. I think you know this podcast is focused on the, the future of litigation and the regulatory environment in Australia, things that you write about all the time. But before we get into that, we know about your journalistic exploits, uh, and but many people won't know your legal training by background. You're an accomplished novelist. I'd like to understand a little bit about your journey uh, from your starting point through to being uh, with the AFR now. Well, I started out as a journalist when I left school. I diverted to doing um, a law degree and... Uh, I found, my, I found my way back to journalism in the early 2000s with The Herald and uh, I did a book. I worked for a couple of um, ministers, federal and state, and um, found my way to the Finn in 2018 and very happily been there ever since. What is it about your legal training that influences the way you write and your interest in legal issues? What, 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 what separates an issue you won't write about legally from, from one that you do enjoy? It's got to be interesting. It has to engage the reader. Um, for example, I used to say about judges, they have an audience, they're locking people in a room, they're forcing people to listen. I have to get people in within the first three paragraphs. If I'm not, they're moving on to something else. So we have to use hooks. We have to uh, sell our stories, make them interesting. Class actions in particular have a money component and um, litigation itself has an adversarial component that's very attractive to people because people like battles, people like contests, and when there's a bit of colour involved, that's always good too. What I've always... I've been fascinated by your role. I think I'm a frustrated journalist at heart. Let me just ask you this. You write about so many different topics, and right now in the law, it's an interesting time to be writing, I imagine, because social justice, corporate culture, there are issues beyond the black letter law that are emerging and that are important. But in recent times, you've written about the indigenous voice, uh, you've written about the, uh, who might be the new chief justice of various jurisdictions. How do you, how do you, what's your editorial approach? I know it's got to interest people, but how do you, you know, choose something that the audience is going to appeal to the audience? Well, I like to break it up. Um, we have the courts, you have the profession, and you have just general issues. You mentioned the Indigenous voice and things like that. Every Friday we do the legal affairs section. There has to be something in for the profession that they can relate to. But also, 
the profession's very broad. We have barristers, we have solicitors. The barristers are more interested in what goes on in the courts and what goes on with the High Court. And I think everybody should be interested in the High Court because it's something that, it's the way we're governed and it does extend past legal. Not many people are interested in class actions. I hate to tell you, Jason, they stories don't rate terribly well, but they do, they're very interested in the High Court. They're interested in, in things like The Voice. But I think where we're heading now is it's a very interesting period because we have an Attorney General who's come in with a big agenda. You mentioned a few of those items. All of them are on his agenda. You have the, you have the first constitution, um, the first, you know, rather, um, constitutional referendum since 1999 coming up with The Voice. We have two High Court judges in the next two months with, or the next 18 months, with the two most influential judges we've had in the last 10 years disappearing. And you have class actions change because Labor very much are tied to the plaintiff law firms and they want their pound of flesh and they're going to get it. So let me, let's focus on that for a minute. And before we come into the class action space in more detail, this seems to be a time of significant change within the legal profession and industry. And for corporate Australia, risks evolving quickly. Now you're sitting there observing trends. You've had a long career, you continue to have a long career. So you see these things perhaps in context better than I would. But right now from corporate Australia's perspective, we've had a financial uh, sector Royal Commission. We've had you know, multiple law reform commissions look at litigation issues and class actions. New government now, heavy agenda for reform. Uh, ES ESG risk is, is in every boardroom. Director's duties are changing. Um, not descending into the detail of all those meaty topics, but what are we going to be talking about for the next 12 months, do you think? What, what are the legal issues that will drive your agenda? The big thing at the moment is the way the profession is reshaping itself after COVID because it's basically become a profession that is largely done remotely. Most people work from home. It used to be a very people-related profession where I would like to get into a room, I would like to talk to people because I think most of us, we don't, when we were at school, we weren't so interested in maths as interested in English. We like to engage with people, we like to engage with ideas. So I think that has changed. But the other thing I think that is really changing is that we're looking at the way the justice system deals with issues now and courts are becoming far more active about the money being spent on litigation. I think there used to be a thing, well, we'll just let things go. I think, don't think that's the case anymore. You're more likely to get intervention about problems. Um, we've talked about class actions. The courts are taking a lot more interest in how much people are able to claim for commissions. I think just generally across the board, there's a reframing of the way we think about things because the law has been always relied on tradition. So it takes a while to move things forward. But what I'm seeing is that an evolution about the way, maybe it's taken 30 years because we only separated from the British in, the, in 1986 with the Australia Act. So we're developing our own system, developing the way we do our own things. And I think that's going to keep, keep, keep going. Again, we keep coming, sorry if I keep coming back to class actions, but it is a dynamic area that's only really evolved in the last 25, 30 years. Couldn't, couldn't be more correct. So let's talk about them. Low rating, but very interesting for you and I, uh, the class action regime. 
a long period. Uh, it's a political uh, issue more, isn't it? Well, I, I was, that's exactly where I was going, that it is, I'm a humble lawyer. I just go to court, I act for my clients, I hope to minimise exposure. But there's a real political dimension to the changing class action landscape. Um, we, we had a period, I don't know if you agree with this, where reforms to class actions, uh, maybe, maybe to get the balance right between their ability to be commenced with the pressure that they're placing on corporate Australia, always got confused with, well, you're trying to stifle access to justice. Um, I think the access to justice argument is a load of old rot. Um, let me tell you about when I first started doing this area, because I didn't report much on class actions before I started, but it immediately became clear to me that if I was going to be working for the Financial Review, this was an issue that had very much interest in corporate Australia. You mentioned about risk. If I could just divert yes. for a bit. You mentioned earlier about directors and risks profile. Well, I've got to say, I'm pretty disappointed, and I wouldn't be a journalist, that the way directors run away from risk. And I think that has been one of the big problems with class actions, is that people have been paying go-away money. They haven't been willing to test things. And we saw the first time a case went to trial with Meyer that Justice Beach basically dismantled a lot of the ideas that people thought about class actions. Now people now are more likely to take things on. So I think it's been disappointing. I think it's been something that's been managed because directors don't want to be exposed, have something bad happen on their watch, more likely to... And then we hear about people complaining about insurance premiums. Well, I would argue the directors are the ones that have largely driven the insurance premiums through their completely adverse risk profile. Do, do you see change here? I mean, from my vantage point, possibly uh, underscored by the evacuation of the insurance industry in part from class action risk. Well, why did that happen, Jason? Well, I agree. It's this equation. High rate of settlement. Uh, uh, an average shareholder class action settlement of 60 million, maybe responsive insurance, a desire to avoid that six-week trial where people are being cross-examined. But I'm, I guess I'm making the asking the question whether you're seeing that slowly change. Maya, Wally, Aluka all went to trial. And people are, are getting more brave about going to trial and calling out a few of the excesses too. Like I know you have a particular view about multiple class actions the system allows someone to file five claims against one person. I personally, I wrote an article a little while back where one of your colleagues suggested we have a takeovers panel style thing for class sections where we sort through all the issues. Frankly, courts aren't equipped to be dealing with things like sorting out money. They're equipped to work out what liability is. And yet we get dragged into this endless process where of pre-trial matters where you tell me, how long does a class action take from start to finish before getting into court? And Absolutely. We're seeing months and sometimes towards and the that's, end. And that's the other reason why directors and other companies are saying, I don't want this on, I don't want this in my head. But if you said to them, this will all, all be solved within a year, great. Now you say to them, oh, it might take three, four, five years by the time we work it all out. So front-loading these issues for, legally, maybe it needs statutory change, but front-loading these issues so that there's a clear path to either settle or get it to trial quickly, you'd see as a valuable... I can see where you're going and I do see value in that, but this is the problem with the whole justice system. Um, you talk about old criminal lawyers now, about the length of criminal trials that go on now. They would say 30 years ago, this one would be done and dusted in a week. This whole notion that we have to argue every point that people, judges get scared about 
being overturned on appeal, about having to consider everything. We can narrow issues a bit more and just make it a bit more focused because I've been in cases where they ramble along and you think, oh, please, will you get to the point? You know? So that, that's a really uh, telling observation and, and I think it's frankly consistent with the frustrations even within our our client base and I think the broader community, the the pathway from A to B is, has become expensive and, and long. It suits plaintiffs more than it suits defendants, my view. Because? Because it's almost a tactical thing. They know it's going to take a hell of a long time to drag out. And they're thinking, well, we've got the staying power. They've normally got massive funds behind them. And I just wonder if the whole appetite for the fight is more with the plaintiff than the defendant. Interesting. So, so that's a segue into where you see the, 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 rec, the financing of big litigation, including class actions. I know you've written extensively on this. At the moment, the winds are changing a little bit on the regulation of funders. The new government's going to remove some of those restrictions that the Liberal government had put in place. And Victoria has con true contingency fees. And we've got an Attorney General who might be looking to expand that mandate. It's just, on the way, Jason. May I get your comment on, on all of that? It's, well, it is. And, but that comes back to that mention, thing we mentioned before, that class actions is now a political issue because it's also mixed up with corporate Australia, that circular notion that who ends up paying it's almost like a victimless crime because shareholders end up paying. It's not like it's coming out of an individual's pocket. So this is the concept of the money go round where the case is really about older, previous shareholders getting money from current shareholders, maybe with a slice of the insurance pie, with a commission to those that promote the claim. And I'll throw in another factor for you. The rise of the, as our, as our share market and all our securities, have become increasingly owned by big super. They're even less profile to risk because they want assured returns to their members. They don't want to be exposed to a multi. So that's another factor where they're coming in and putting, I think, putting pressure. I'm hearing they're putting pressure on people to settle as well. I see. So, Michael, I want to talk about the amorphous concept of balance. I know you've got views on this. Um, let me put the arguments neutrally. One camp says, particularly with the emergence of litigation funding and contingency fees for plaintiffs' law firms. The, the legal system, particularly in the shareholder space, is moving into more of a platform for generating profit to third parties. The other argument is, you're seeing that wrong, we're opening up pathways to access for justice for people who wouldn't be able to afford it. Balance is a wonderful thing, Jason. You mentioned um, uh, people investing. Well, I don't think everybody, anybody ever saw the legal system as being an investment opportunity but that's just the way it has turned out. I know you have a particular view about the returns that litigation funders enjoy, and it is problematic because it looks like they're getting money for nothing. And it has been a real problem for corporate Australia because they hold the gun at the head. These are very big, well-resourced companies who are prepared to wait people out and, and they're in for the long haul. So if a claim is taking five years, they don't mind having that money set aside for five years. The balance, as I see it now, turning around, is that we've had the last 10 years in particular, we had nine years of coalition rule. In that time, 
haven't been dealt too many favours legislatively. We had the period in the last government where they were trying to wind things back with managed investment schemes, even talking about having, having a cap on payouts. All that's going to disappear. We're going to have probably contingency fees. We're going to have common fund orders in legislation. We're going to have a much more plaintiff-friendly environment. If I can even steal the words from the current Attorney-General, it's not going to be hostile to plaintiffs. I, I follow that. So, so let me ask you this. If I, was, if I had ambitions to see legislation introduced that might regulate the, re the return on investment to funders. Dream on. Dreaming? Dream on. Uh, you, you're a chance, you were a chance last time, but interestingly, one of the groups pushing back against that was the Institute of Company Directors. They thought 70% was too high. They thought 50%, 50% as in a margin. Yes, you, I um, But I don't, see, I don't see a great issue around profit. That's not a concern of the justice system and it shouldn't be. I think would funders, sorry, would funders agree with that? The funders that I've spoken to, uh, I wouldn't say they're rushing towards regulation, but they would accept a level of it. Uh, and if you or I tried to move hundreds of millions of dollars across the economy, you know, we'd have a license or some someone would be we'd be reporting to someone. But that's starting to affect the, the turf of the plaintiff law firms, and that's not going to happen. Your Morris Blackburns, you, they they are big players. They've wanted to be. In this space, they have massive cash and capital reserves. They can, they can fund actions just as easily as litigation funders, and that's what they're going to do and what they're increasingly doing. And will we see contingency fees nationally, do you think, if we're having this conversation in Absolutely. 12 months? Yeah. I would say within two years. Because the problem is Victoria has been allowed to charge contingency fees through group, through group cost orders, and that means that it's become a very attractive destination. And... Courts are very competitive, Jason. They, the federal court competes with the Victorian Supreme Court and the New South Wales Supreme Court for work. And at the currently, it's not a level playing field. There is something unsatisfactory about um, the choice of jurisdiction being driven by how lawyers... It's forum funded. shopping. And forum shopping's terrible. Well, what, what about this? Um, th there is an argument uh, that class actions... Clearly, in our country, there are access to justice issues. I'm not talking about corporate uh, misconduct because we've got plenty of supply of class action services there. In other areas, uh, deaths in custody, you know, socially disadvantaged parts of the community, even, even some products liability claims are not getting... I can see exactly where you're going yeah. because this is where, and you're quite right, the class action system has become a way to drive social change that people don't think they're getting politically. Take, for example, the climate change regulation. Uh, the, you're talking about the deaths in custody. They are not getting satisfactory answers via government. But also, we've got a very... Lawyers are very inventive. They're, they want to invent new species of uh, liability. Courts are also open to it too. It's not like... The, we're not... It's not statutorily based. It's largely a common law system how of we, liability. I follow. And, and how do we... I mean, this is a, a question maybe a... A journalist and a lawyer can't answer, but how do we ensure that uh, the class action mechanism is turning its face to the areas of significant need, rather than say having five class actions competing to? Can serve? I ask you a question? Yeah. What do, What do you see as the areas of significant need? Well, where, where there is an undersupply of class actions in, in the space of uh, cultural change, so hostile work environment, uh, gender discrimination, racial discrimination. I see, I see where you're going. Yeah. Can I 
well, raise something. Sadly, I've been doing this job for too long. Um, Are you interviewing many, me now? Oh, well, maybe. Um, many, many years ago, Bob Debus, who was the new, who was a Attorney General in New South Wales, proposed an idea that didn't get through the the Committee of Attorneys General. He wanted to set up a fund where there would be a percentage taken out of the court costs to set up a fund where people could launch class actions for social issues and drive social change that way. It never got off the ground. So now we have it where it's become involved with the whole other class action regime about profit, who's getting returns. Now, happily, I've seen the funders take much lower rate, accept much lower rates of return for these, for these social issues. And there's going to be much more of them. Climate change, eventually it's going to happen. Um, somebody will find a minister liable for not having a, not following his duty to young people. Because I, I, I follow. And I mean, you, you make a good point. And I guess I'm wondering where, how we get to that point. Because as you know, and you've, you've made an excellent point about a, uh, what I'll call a fighting fund, even the class action framers, the ALRC proposed that. And it would be self-funding. Hmm. But the criteria for what cases you choose, I know that machinery is going to be all very difficult. But I wonder under the current political environment whether we might see the second coming of that idea. Well, I could see Mark Dreyfus driving it, but whether he has much, um, much support from, uh, from his state colleagues is interesting too because it becomes an issue of do people want to go down this road because you are creating almost a parallel not a parallel justice system, but another way for people to get into the justice system. So that's a, that's a tricky issue as well. How about this one? Uh, again, I know these are questions without notice, so you'll, you'll, you'll um, tell me if I'm way off I've base. never asked you any of those. <laughs> no, I? that's true. If I'm a, just thinking again, bringing it back to my client base, if I'm a director or an officer, I'm sitting in a boardroom now, I'm thinking about what do I need to prepare myself for over the next couple of years be ready for in terms of corporate risk, corporate liability? Is it ESG? Is it disclosure about admissions? Is it making sure I've got a workplace that's inclusive? Where, where's I my... think ESG is the big one yeah. because it affects your reputation. It affects everything you do. And I don't think we're too far away from having some actions based on corporate purpose where people are making statements about where they stand and what they do and they will have shareholders and people calling them to account when they don't do that. So if companies really want to be serious about ESG, it can't be lip service. I think a lot of the moment it is. So I think that we're moving in the next phase of ESG where people are actually going to get serious about their ESG issues. Yeah, makes sense. So let's pivot away from that. I want to talk a little bit more about your journey uh, to, to where you are today. Are, are there particular experiences you've had in your career as a lawyer, as a journalist, both, um, but sort of are emblematic of, of what you see about the future of, of, of the Australian environment. I mean, what lessons have you learned along the way that you think are going to, our clients, me, you know, be useful to remember these things as we get into the new phase of litigation and, and, and risk in Australia? I think the big thing with litigation is it is an adversarial contest. If we could somehow just reduce a little bit of the adversarial bits until we get to the final issue. I just see lawyers still wanting to fight over everything. Interlocutory matters before you get to trial. It's just, I understand sorting it out, but why does that, everything have to be such a battle? And if lawyers could, and litigators could not fight over the little stuff so much, I think that would be a 
big improvement. Is that how the community, broader community, perceives the legal profession, do you think, as a... You fight over nothing at times. It, it, it's the big issue, whether somebody can say something some way. I understand the legal system as, as it is, and we had this mentality that if it's all wrong, if, it's, if anything's wrong, we start again. I mean, people just want a little bit of measure in the justice system. They, they just see it as this system of excess. I mean, do we, all, do we have to have a Rolls-Royce system all the time? You make a powerful point, and that actually is a point that comes out, falls from the mouths of our, our clients. There are different, commerciality is now the driving feature of litigation, and if you can't do something quickly, cheaply... Give us the cases that really matter. We understand that courts play a very important role in solving disputes, and solving corporate disputes, two people who cannot, cannot come to agreement one way or another, they just see things fundamentally different. That is what courts are there for, to solve those. But can we solve it in a more efficient way? Why does it have, why does a case, what if one of your case actions have to take four years? Now I understand people have to gather evidence and doing everything's like that, but if it was a little bit adversarial, you'd get to that final point sooner. Bit of a theme's come through our interactions today, several themes, one of them is access to justice and... Don't make me laugh. No, I, that's a big theme and, oh. uh, and I know you've got strong views. And I'm looking at a, a market where we introduce contingency fees under the rubric of more access Why to justice. Why do people want contingency fees, Joe? Well, you tell me, because oh, here's what I do know. Better return. Yes, but, but all five or, or so of the applications for contingency fees made in the Victorian Supreme Court, all in the shareholder class action space. Not exactly an area where we've got an under undersupply. So, I mean, how do, we get, how do we solve this access for justice problem and get the access to the places where it's needed the most? When I first arrived at the Fin in 2018, I went and chatted to a senior barrister friend of mine. I said, tell me a little bit about class actions. And he said to Michael, there's only one thing you have to remember about class actions. It's all about money. So, and if you hear the words access to justice, that's a fluke. The same way it's a fluke with politicians if they actually manage to marry good policy with a good political outcome. That is a fluke. The same way it's a fluke. So it sounds like you'd support, but what we won't see, uh, some, some fairly tight caps on recoveries from those. Things. I would like to see a rethink of the way judges assess what is a fair and reasonable return. I think it's been a bit of a racket. How we arrived at 25%, 30% 30 as a risk profile answer, you've seen the common fund orders. Uh, one was 27, 27.5, I think, in Victoria, and then there was a, because another one had carried more risk, it was 40%. Would you support a mandate on this portion has to go to group members? No, I just want to, I want to rethink about what's a reasonable return and what's a reasonable figure for plaintiffs to get because you are still suing on a person's behalf. Is the plaintiff getting a proper return? I can tell you, the main concern amongst federal court judges is these ridiculous sums that don't find their way to plaintiffs, that go straight to the pockets of the funders. Are the plaintiffs getting a proper return? You, know, you can say, okay, well, they, wouldn't, they weren't going to get anything, that 70% of Nothing or 70% of something's a hell of a lot better than 0% of nothing, you know. There's some force to that though, isn't there? I mean, this, this class action regime just wasn't being used before the funding market developed. But my problem is what, 
what has become the idea of what's a reasonable return yeah. is, I think, very problematic. Well, it is a market where the rates of return are higher than, than you and I could do in other markets. So that, that's, and for me, maybe Other a, investment markets. Indeed. It's become an investment proposition. Yes, it has. And we have social activist lawyers and we have businessmen lawyers. The businessmen lawyers are running class actions. So is the answer to my problem then, we've got to make, we've got to change the law. Not, so sorry, not all of them. Some of them, you do see class actions with a good social purpose and some we're talking about securities class actions. I don't think people have a great problem with product liability actions as much. That, and that's, I guess, my point. Maybe the law has to change to, to make sure there are appropriate incentives to pursue those kinds of uh, claims because at the moment I think the, the class actions are following the money which tends to gravitate to the corporate conduct, the, the shareholder class action claims, where we're not seeing, and I accept what you say, funders even have pro bono arms, plaintiffs' law firms have pro bono arms, so there's good work being done in those spaces, but uh, we're not seeing challenges as, as much as perhaps we should to, to areas of social change because there's no money in it. I think you might see funders taking it on as a way of increasing their reputation, saying, look at this one we're doing over there. This has the shiny halo over it. Yes, we've got these ones going over there, but there's a point I should have made that I don't think securities class actions haven't served a purpose because I think everybody would argue that boards are far more aware of what information they put out in the market. And I think that's been a good thing. But the nitpicking that goes on and the market causation theory, thank God, thank God Jonathan Beach blew that up. Because that whole notion that a market falls slightly and, oh, you know, they've all got models. If it falls by a certain amount, we've got a class action. How did we ever work out that the market fall, felt for a particular reason or not? Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a problem for, for me and for a lot of other people. So if we can get back to a proper thing where we're assessing liability of people who are going into a market as investors who know what they're doing and see if we maybe rethink the whole idea of shareholders and class action. There's got to be a buyer beware component. Michael, that was an excellent um, discussion and I think it really draws out the, the, the economics, conflicting with the law, conflicting with the, the business practices, I mean, it's, um, and the politics. I mean, it's been really interesting to get your take and thank you for being generous with your time. It uh, means a lot to us. Pleasure, Jason. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.